0: Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet, so why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG Principal Dr. Nick and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the US and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now, here's your host, Dr. Nick. We can all probably
1: remember with clarity that moment when pain strikes, that moment when you trip, fall, and break something, your ankle, foot, or perhaps worse, a larger bone. I've been witness to a few instances personally as part of youth sports. There is no sound quite like the crack of a breaking bone. If you know it, you know it. I certainly did when I heard a femur being broken, and in another case, both the tibia and fibula in the lower leg. What happened next in those instances was driven by the urgency and the pain and required immediate treatment and mitigation. But what follows can be highly varied depending on the injury. But even when holding all other variables for the same injury, the treatment profile can be highly fickle. Even in cases that, for all intents and purposes, are clinically identical, can find the treatment protocol and pathways are totally different. In my own personal journey of hip and back pain, I remember my ouch moment clearly. I was attending my usual class of high intensity interval training, also known as HIT. We were doing lateral shuffles, alternating feet crossing in front and behind. As was typical, I was in full-on competition mode. I know, I know, you're not competing with others, only yourself. I was attempting to get there and back first when pain shot through my hip and I almost stumbled. The rest of the class was not the usual roaring success and it became clear I had injured myself somehow. Over the next several weeks I muddled through trying to mitigate with the usual rest, ice and pain medication But nothing really worked, and my mobility continued to decline. At some point in the process, I stepped into the typical healthcare system, visiting a physician and seeking a diagnosis, treatment and relief. Unfortunately, that process for musculoskeletal or MSK problems is not consistent. And what happens is largely driven by who you see first and their experience and approach. While there are outliers, the vast majority of MSK issues will respond well to conservative treatment and not require surgical intervention. But in our fee-for-service driven healthcare system, that is not the most likely pathway for many. But we should all want the best care with the least amount of intervention and disruption. Surgery should be an option, but one for consideration later after other tools have failed. Increasingly, medicine is moving to this model, but the specialty of orthopedics that deals with problems in bones and muscles has been slower to move towards a more holistic approach where surgery is not the first option. How do we make this a wider standard of care? Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Stephen Schutzer. He's an orthopedic surgeon from Advanced Orthopedics New England and co-founder of the Moving to Value Alliance and Upswing Health. Hi, Steve, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Nick, it's great to be here.
1: So your history brings us to a point in time where um, you, you were practicing as an orthopedic surgeon and you decided to rethink the whole delivery of orthopedics. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would.
2: Yeah, I sure would, Nick. A pleasure. So in 2006, 2007, we saw the emergence of what we called an epidemic uh, in total joint. I'm a, I'm a joint replacement surgeon. I do hip and knee arthroplasty and baby boomers in my generation were coming of age. And it was predicted, you know, 2 million, 3 million a year, just an, an explosion of volume. And a group of us said, we're doing three cases a day. We have zero input or influence over any of the operations that guide these patients. We're just bringing patients to a hospital, operating on them, but we had no input on these systems. So believe it or not, 10 egomaniac orthopedic surgeons came together and said, listen, let's agree to doing two things. It was a novel approach, Nick, in 2006. Let's agree to make data-driven decisions and standardizing our approach to our care delivery. And we formed a company, Connecticut Joint Replacements. So we formed an LLC. Then we had to find a partner. We got very lucky. We found a partner here in Hartford, Connecticut, St. Francis Hospital. They, they shared the same vision that we did. And they said, here, Steve, run with it. Build us a COE, a center of excellence. And we did. We did that by looking at the data. Every patient from the very first patient, 50,000 now and strong, all those patients are in a central repository we call our registry. So that, that was sort of the underpinning of the evolution of an arthroplasty center of excellence. It was so successful, Nick, for joint replacement that we spawned off the same program for spine surgery, for sports surgery, for trauma surgery. And for 16 years, I had the distinct honor uh, and privilege of being the physician executive overseeing that, that entire body.
1: So as I listen to you, one of the things that really strikes me, knowing physicians as I do, you you gather three surgeons and ask them for their opinion on how to do one specific task, and you'll come up with at least four different answers. I, I get the data driven. I think people could subscribe to that relatively easily. But getting agreement on standardization of care, that seems like a bridge. How did you achieve that?
2: Yeah, you have to use a little bit of guilt, Nick. they are kind of tricks <laughs> that leaders have, you know. So first of all, you have to have the surgeons believe in data, and and again, that that's a hurdle unto itself. Mm. And the we the way to get the surgeons to believe in the data is have them participate in the adjudication of the of the raw data, and it it doesn't happen in in a few weeks. It took years, and I'll be honest with you. At first, I was doctor number ten because I didn't believe the data myself. But once we had real credibility uh, and we had a five-step adjudication method and the data came out squeaky clean, then we came out of the closet, so to speak. And I was Steve Schutzer and and Jay Kimmel and so on and so forth. And there's nothing like data, especially for folks that are highly competitive like orthopedic surgeons. So, And and listen, protocol development, I, I can't force a protocol on anybody. There are laws against that. We can make suggestions, we can look for um, collaboration, but we can't force it on anybody's throat. There's another way to do that, Nick. It's under bundling, bundled payments, these new alternative payment models where surgeons are going at risk. We're taking risk on the outcome. Well, now we will say to Surgeon X, listen, if you want to be in this bundle and have access and accrue these new patients, I need you to cooperate on just five protocols diabetes smoking wound care and so on and so forth. So as leaders we have little tools but it always comes back to data credible actionable data.
1: Yeah, I think I would summarize that in in one word it's a trust issue, a trust in the data that allows your colleagues to say, well I'm willing to reveal my name because I think even even if I'm and and I'm guessing when you were surgeon number 10 this you're talking about lists or rankings. Right. And you know, revealing your name to be—I'm sure you weren't tenth in the list. It was just you were number ten. But you know where you were in the rankings. You wouldn't want that to be the case if you didn't trust the data. And I think that's sort of you know central tenant to sort of delivering that. The other thing that sort of strikes me about this is that you know I, it was a pretty good business prior to this. You know, I, I'm guessing uh, orthopedic surgeons doing fairly well you know, in in some respects, comfortable because they're doing what they love, which is operating, replacing, in in your case, replacing joints. Um, Was was this a change to that sort of thinking, which said, instead of just going through this process and doing, we're going to be a little bit more thoughtful in the approach to who gets into the hopper? Was that what was going on as part of this?
2: Yeah, Nick, it's a dramatic change in thinking. In fact, more fundamentally, it was a dramatic change in behavior. I never thought that I would become a behavioral therapist and a behavioral scientist. But, but needless to say, leaders, yeah, this is what we have to do. So even the biggest egomaniac you know, orthopedic surgeon loves autonomy above all. oh mm. know that. That means more to us. In fact, I'm a big fan of Daniel Pink. If you haven't read a great book called The Puzzle of Motivation, what, what motivates human behavioral change? Number one is autonomy. It's not money. It's autonomy. And we had total control of our lives, our team, our operating team, our nurses. So even the biggest, let's say, egomaniac we say, Hmm. Steve, this is you know I'm doing okay, and 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 let's talk about the volume. So prior to Cjri, the Connecticut Joint Placement Institute, I would get three done on a good day. We get eight done now, in in, in less than that time, because we use two rooms. We have efficiencies, same staff, same PAs. It is it's like a ballet, and not a surgical procedure. So when you get paid by the unit and you ask for a little bit of cooperation to follow these protocols, and you create this life experience for them and their patients, then, then, then you see these kind of changes because we all want value-based healthcare to succeed. And we talk about data and technology, but it comes down to behavior, everybody's behavior.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, I think back to my medical school, there was zero, literally zero, behavioral modification education and, you know, that permeates throughout medicine, because we're essentially influencers to our patients, and to our colleagues throughout all of that. So I'm hoping perhaps the education will change. Although to be clear, it hasn't in 30 plus years, because I see it through my own daughter. And she certainly didn't. Um, she's followed in my my footsteps. Um, as you look at this, and look at the you've got this massive data set, what did you pull out of that? It feels like there must be some key elements that, you know, really struck you, perhaps were a surprise.
2: Yeah, you know, that's great. Um, 50,000 patients, we collect a 1,000 data elements on each patient. And so when you, listen, oftentimes when you start a protocol, it's kind of empirical. But then after running off a 1,000 patients, you look back at it, you know, it's the plan, do, check, act, Deming's model. Mm. continue to iterate nothing is permanent but you continue to iterate so when we started cgri our transfusion rate was 21 percent. we learned that transfusions are not really good for patients at all for all the reasons you already know so we instituted a protocol this is even before transemic acid and it went down to four percent right and and when we posted everybody's transfusion rates. And one guy was at 10% and his infection rate was higher than the one at 4%. And he said, oh, maybe transfusions are not that good. And then we ins- then we instituted, as you know, transcemic acid and transfusion rates are less than 1% today. But that's an example, Foley catheter management. But when you have a rich, credible database and all of our docs come together and review the data every other month, at these various database meetings, it's just an incredible, powerful tool for change. People love it.
1: Did did, did The physicians that participated in this must have come, well, maybe they came in with good database chops and data analysis chops, or was that something that had to be learned? Because it's not part of general medical school training.
2: No, yeah. In our registry, we built organically on our own, but but we do have relationships with third-party vendors, one to collect our patient reported outcomes and our patient experience metrics. The other one is called Avant Garde out of Boston that does our financial analytics. And then they integrate those with our registry. And again, as you mentioned before, surgeons don't like to be outliers. And if I can get an operation done for $2,000 less with the same outcomes as Dr. Y, Dr. Y says, Well, tell me, I don't even know where that came from. You use the data and say, Listen, you realize that your widget's $2,000 more. It's the same thing. Right? Mm-hmm. So again, data and trust. You're right. If, if, if the docs didn't trust the data, it would be meaningless. And the problem is, as you well know, Early on, 1990s and so forth, much of the data came from the payer community and it was heavily polluted. No one paid any attention to it and there was no trust. But I don't know of a more potent tool for healthcare leaders than than actionable trusting data.
1: So let's fast forward. You've set this up. You created this institute, this uh, center of excellence. You rolled it out not just for uh, hips and joints, but, you know, through these other uh, areas, um, you've increased essentially capacity, which I think we we need as a, a society in general. But let's reconcile that against, uh, you know, at least my own personal bias that people that listen to this show will know, which is, is that the right pathway forward? And is that the most appropriate treatment for these individuals coming in? How are you approaching that now and what did the pandemic do to sort of change perhaps a little bit of that thinking?
2: Yeah, no, that that's a great question. And listen, right. we absolutely loved, love what we've created at these four institutes and the people. And then it became a model, quite honestly, for the rest of the state and the rest of the region. And it really has had a lot of visibility. Um, and and you But you bring out a good point. With all of this great surgery, great techniques, great protocols, it doesn't touch on the question of, of appropriateness. You may do eight a day, but none of them are necessary, right? <laughs> I, I can say that's not true of in my institution.
1: No, I, I, I'm sure it's not, but obviously it's a concern. Concerned.
2: And so we have in our bundle payment model something called an appropriate use criteria form or pre-certification form, where the surgeons attest to the fact that all conservative measures have been exploited and they attest with their name to it. So it does address the uh, appropriateness of use issue. But that said, my partner, so uh, Dr. Jay Kimmel and I created this company called Upswing Health. We started talking about it five years ago, maybe a little bit more because let's face it, thank goodness, 90% of orthopedics is not in the operating room, right? unfortunately, it's in the offices, the emergency departments, urgent cares, all other sorts of stuff. And we said, why don't we look upstream now, and not all the way at the operating room, and let's see what we can do, because we know there's a better way. We know there's a better way. 50% of the patients that I see in my office, Nick, come to me through the ED and the primary care doc. And this is not saying anything bad about those physicians. They're just not trained in MSK. They're not trained in orthopedics. So the PCP, you know, who's got 15 minutes to see a comorbid diabetic obese patient who says my shoulder hurts, what are they going to do? Here's go get an MRI and go see the surgeon. Right. And we understand how that, that that journey sometimes is not the best journey for the patient. So we set out to say, let's see if we can intercept and, and get patients on the right care path from what we call the ouch moment whether it's an acute ouch or an exacerbation of a chronic problem. When somebody has this ouch moment, they have two questions. What do I have and where do I go? Right? What do I have and where do I go? And we think today that much of that can be done virtually. We thought that before, but I'll tell you what, the pandemic for all of its misery has really showed us that so much of this can be virtualized. So we built this company. Another thing, Nick, I, I have a, a little hobby. I study evolutionary biology. And, you know, we come preloaded onto this great earth with hundreds of thousands of years of software, our own software. And sometimes with a little bit of guidance, we get better ourselves. We're just a little bit of tools. <laughs> so you don't need MRI scans and operations and cortisone and all that sort of stuff. So with that kind of DNA, Understanding from our combined 70 years of practice, working with the Harvard Business School on cost and quality, we said, let's design it the way it should be. Virtual first, have the patients come 24-7 to upswinghealth.com, jump onto our platform. They ask, they jump onto our platform. They answer some questions that would mimic the same questions I would have you ask about your hip. Was there an injury? Does it click? Does it pop? Where does it hurt? Does it refer? Blah 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 blah. And the algorithm's thinking about ten seconds later, it gives you a differential diagnosis, and then the opportunity to read about each of those options to the point where Nick, you would say, Hey, you know what? It sounds like maybe I do have a labral tear. Let me read about this. I'm not going to die of bone cancer. You know, maybe I don't even need to see a doc. Let me try these stretches and so forth. And the next day, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, our athletic trainers reach out to you, Nick, and they say, hey, it looks like, you know, going through your questions, you might have some pathology in the hip. Let me help guide you on some other rehabilitation tools. And I'll check back in two days, Nick, and see how you're doing. And two weeks later, maybe you're not getting better. So I've got another solution. We have a orthopedic specialists called primary care sports medicine docs. Uh, that are trained uh, primary care docs that do the extra training orthopedics, and they'll do a telehealth visit with you. And if necessary, we can now get imaging arranged and keep the patient in this journey until a very small amount need to be referred out. In point of fact, we've been managing the state of Connecticut health plan, first on a pilot, now live. 75% of the patients that have come to our platform are managed virtually. And they say, Thank you very much. 59% avoided a visit to the ED. 46% o- avoided a visit to the doc. And the problem was solved. Now, think about the savings to the payer, to the plan sponsor. And of course, the patients love not having to come to the office, sit in the ED, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, the model works. And we're very excited about this virtual front door that that we've created.
1: So, I, I, I mean, I clearly i'm a a fan of this but let's talk about this from an economic standpoint and the challenge for your colleagues and the systems that are still stuck in a fee-for-service world where as i listen to this this is this is good care but it may not pay the bills or allow these facilities to uh, be economically viable because they're not seeing enough uh activity to warrant the investment that they have how have you approached that particular challenge that you know is clearly an economic one
2: yeah if you're speaking about orthopedic practices listen orthopedic surgeons and fee-for-service make their money by doing stuff Mm. and think of upswing as a funnel we're a giant on-ramp top of the funnel bring them all in and then we filter them with algorithms with coaches with self-help tools with uh all all of the tools in our tool chest. But at the end of the day, some people do need surgery. And those are the ones we refer out for surgical consultation. So practices are going to need to evolve, right? They, They don't, for example, in my old world, I used to see 25 patients a session to book three cases. Oh, wouldn't it be great if I saw eight patients and book seven? So much better use of my time. So the world is changing. We need to continue to evolve and iterate, squeeze out, the, the value that we can create, give the, the give the purchasers what they need, the savings, because twenty five to thirty percent of MSK today is low value, no value, and waste. And we can do much better than that.
1: So if I capture what you're saying, essentially, you're making better use of those highly skilled individuals. You're funneling in the folks that actually need those services versus the mass. So you're making best use of that particular individual's time, skill set, capabilities. And ultimately, you're still getting the business because there's more than enough available and, and in need of it. It's just that in most instances these systems are overwhelmed in fact if i go back far enough in my own practice i can recall how bad it was in orthopedics you could barely get an appointment you're filtering that out and importantly taking out the patients that do not need the service the surgical service in this instance and treating them I'm going to say conservatively. I feel like that's the wrong term in this day and age. I think it's not conservative, but appropriately, which is non surgical management of this. So, all in all, it sounds like a win win all around. Um, Steve, thanks for joining me on the show today.
2: Nick, what a wonderful opportunity. Thank you so much.
1: As you heard, this more integrated approach is a win for everyone. It's a win for patients who are getting the best that medicine and orthopaedics have to offer. But even in a fee-for-service world, it's the best for orthopaedic surgeons and hospitals, helping remove the long waits and wasted resources on inappropriate care selections. Instead, this allows orthopaedic surgeons to focus on the patients that need them most. Your better pill to swallow is to rethink the delivery of specialized orthopaedic services and intercept those patients that have traditionally been referred in and often clog up the specialist referral network. Create solutions that answer the questions quickly and efficiently for patients. What do they have and where should they go? Thereby freeing up your specialist resources to treat the patients who need and will benefit from the highly skilled resources quickly. Thanks for joining me. Your host, Dr Nick on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon,
0: it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also check out our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.